listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Welcome to the reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for January 23rd, 2023. I'm Mel from Drake University. Here is our first story. Methodist Jenny Edmondson's Plans for Dance to the Beat Announce. The story is by Tim Johnson. Dancing is a good way to keep warm in the winter, and Methodist Jenny Edmondson Hospital has just the tickets. The 7th Annual Dance to the Beat will be held from 7 to 11 p.m. on February 17th at the Mid-American Center, one arena way in Council Bluffs. The event is a fundraiser for patients of Methodist Jenny Edmondson Cardiovascular Services via Jenny Edmondson Foundation, according to Tara Slevin, Jenny's Chief Philanthropy Officer. Proceeds will benefit uninsured and underinsured cardiac patients at Jenny. We are excited to be back in person this year, Slevin said. The hospital's last in-person dance to the beat was on February 20th, 2020, she said. It was one of the last in-person events in the community before the COVID-19 pandemic brought postponements, cancellations, and restrictions. As always, the event will feature live music performed by the, by the popular local band Taxi Driver, as well as an auction and raffle prizes. Light appetizers and desserts will be provided, and there will be a cash bar for those 21 or older. What people enjoy about Dance to the Beat, besides Taxi Driver, is it's, casu- is it's a casual event, Slevin said. People can come in jeans and just have a good time. Besides performing at the event since it started, the band help- has helped promote it, Slevin said. They kind of helped us get us helped us get it going from the ground level, she said. People have learned about cardiology by following Taxi Driver to different events. Taxi Driver is a great partner for the foundation and the hospital. Money raised from the event will help patients with treatment and other expenses, Slevin said. We do an awful lot of help with transportation and medication, she said. We've seen a really big uptick in support needs and costs, and those kind of everyday expenses patients are incurring. The hospital is also making sure patients have a good support system, Slevin said. Methodist Jenny Edmondson Hospital's Cardiovascular Services Unit has received multiple awards from the American Heart Association for its cardiovascular services. They are a nationally recognized team with incredible outcomes, Slevin said. In 2019, the hospital received the American Heart Association's Mission, Lifetime, and STEM Gold Quality Achievement Award and Mission Lifeline STEMI Gold Receiving Quality Achievement Award for implementing specific quality improvement measures outlined by the American Heart Association. For the treatment of ST elevation myocardial infarction, STEMI, the deadliest type of heart attack, is caused by a blockage of blood flow to the heart that requires timely treatment. To prevent death, it is critical to restore blood flow as quickly as possible, either by mechanically opening the blocked vessel 
or providing clot-busting medication. In 2022, the hospital received the American Heart Association's mission Lifeline Regional STEMI Achievement Award for its commitment to offering rapid research-based care to people across the region experiencing an ST elevation myocardial infarction. Receiving regional recognition from the association requires a commitment to high-quality systems of care among STEMI receiving centers. STEMI referencing centers, 9-11 EMS agencies, and other supporting system participants other supporting system participants through collaborative efforts, including interfacility transportation agencies and quality improvement priorities. Tickets for Dance to the Beat are $30 and can be purchased in advance online or by calling the foundation or by calling the foundation at 712-396-6040. Tickets can also be purchased at the door. Auction items will be posted online for two weeks before the event. The next story is titled, A Look at Recent Changes to Iowa Tax Law and Whether They Impact This Year's Returns. This story is by Erin Murphy from the, from the Gazette, Cedar Rapids. Tax documents are beginning to arrive in Iowans' mailboxes, and soon those Iowans will be filing their taxes. State lawmakers have made many changes to Iowa's tax laws in recent years, particularly by reducing state income tax rates. So what should Iowans expect when they see their taxes this year and prepare to file? What's changed since? Federal deductibility. While moving to lower state income tax rates, lawmakers also implemented a phase-out of Iowans' ability to take a deduction on their state taxes or their federal tax payment. But federal deductibility still lives for now. For the vast majority of Iowans, this will be the last year they can deduct their federal taxes while filing. Next year, for most Iowans, that option goes away. Income tax rates. The most recent state income tax overhaul, which was spearheaded by Republican state lawmakers, reduces state income tax rates over four years until it reaches 3.9% for everyone. But those changes did not start until January 1st of this year, so they will not show up on the tax returns that Iowans file this year. For the year's tax returns, Iowans will have paid state income taxes at the old rates, covering nine brackets depending on one's income ranging from 0.33 to 8.53%. Starting this year, Iowa will have just four tax brackets. The top rate is reduced to 6% and descending income brackets will be taxed 5.7, 4.82, and 4.4%. That can be seen on Paychecks Now and will start up in the next year's tax findings. Each year, those numbers will be reduced until 2026 when Iowa will have just one state income tax rate of 3.9%. The changes are expected to save Iowa income taxpayers nearly $2 billion annually, but also reduce the revenues that fund state government by, the same, by that same amount. Retirement income. Similarly, this year's tax filings will still include taxes paid on retirement income earned in 2022. 
This year's filings will not yet show another recent change. Starting January 1st, Iowans are no longer paying state taxes on retirement income. Those changes will be seen in next year's tax filings. Filings and Returns Craig Paulson, Director of State Revenue and Budget Management Departments, said he does not expect any issues that would cause state refunds to be delayed this year. He said the Revenue Department typically issues refunds within 30 days of tax filing, and that will continue to be the goal this year. Paulson said much of that 30-day window is needed to prevent fraud by ensuring the accuracy and legitimacy of findings or filings and refunds. The Iowa Department of Revenue's website at tax.iowa.gov has resources to answer frequently asked questions about taxes, forms, or emailing tax questions for tracking refunds. The next story is titled, Lawmakers Look to Address Cyber Attacks by Caleb McCullough. Cybersecurity is the focus of a slate of bills in the Iowa legislature as Lawmakers hope to provide resources to schools, local governments, and other entities to to respond to cyber attacks. A new technology committee in the Senate was formed this year, and the House's technology committee is considering bills criminalizing ransomware, creating a cybersecurity unit in state government, and seeking to develop cybersecurity professionals in the state, among other things. Cyber attacks. Attempts to access, damage, or destroy a computer system have been on the rise in the past year. Attacks increased by 28% globally in the third quarter of 2022, according to Checkpoint, a cybersecurity company. Schools, healthcare settings, banking, and utilities are common targets of cyber attacks, according to Checkpoint. Chris Cornier, Cornoa, Cornier, A Republican from LeClaire who chairs the new Senate Technology Committee says she wants to look at finding measures that will arm schools and local governments with the tools to defend against attacks. It's really important that we pay attention to it at the state level, she said, and make sure that we're providing the Iowa Chief Information Officer the resources that he needs to go out and support those local governments. When it comes to the private sector, Claire said that she wants to address technology concerns without hamstringing businesses' ability to function. I want to be able to responsibly use technology to protect the rights of our citizens, the privacy of our citizens, without tying the hands of our businesses and small sector. She said, because we want to continue to attract businesses and tech in the state. J.D. Schulten, a Democrat from Sioux City that sits on the House Economic Growth and Technology Committee, said he hopes that the committee passes legislation that is flexible and can react to the rapid pace of technology challenges government is facing. Some of the bills are 10 years too late, he said. What I don't want is to have this as a bill that we see in several other areas where we're trying to adjust things from 1992 legislation. He said, technology is going to be ever-evolving, and we need to make sure that we keep up with the times. Challenges to cybersecurity. In a presentation to the State Technology Committee last week, two security experts said, while Iowa is in relative 
in a relatively strong position on cybersecurity, challenges exist with collaboration between the public and private sectors. Both private industry and the public sector struggle with finding people with expertise to respond to their needs. Needs. Doug Jacobson, the director of Iowa State University's Cybersecurity Center, told the committee, Communication between the two areas also could be improved, and private businesses aren't always granted access to the same information as governments, he said. Smaller organizations can also have difficult time getting funding or accessing resources during a cyber attack, said Aaron Warner, who runs Iowa's Iowa City-based cybersecurity firm, ProCircular. Those FBI case agents carry 30 cases. Probably a million dollars is an average amount of ransomware that they're dealing with. So that small accounting firm in Clarendon is going to have a great difficulty getting access to those cybersecurity resources. He said, Ransomware. One bill passed out of a subcommittee last week would make it a crime to launch a ransomware attack punishable by up to a Class C felony. Ransomware, a type of software that disables a computer system until a sum of money is paid, is not currently a crime in Iowa, and advocates said it's an important first step in adding protections for our businesses and government organizations. Major school districts were disrupted in ransomware attacks last year. The Cedar Rapids School District paid a ransom after suffering a cyber attack last summer. Though it did not disclose the amount paid, a hacker group claimed to have stolen troves of data from the Davenport district, and a spokesperson said the hackers demanded a ransom, but it was not paid. Sheila King, the chief information officer for Central Iowa's Heartland Area Education Agency, said schools are among the top target for ransomware attacks. Having penalties for violators seems like a reasonable thing, she said. We see this as a top issue for the education community. Molly Ross, the vice president of operations for the Technology Association of Iowa, said the bill is a good start for protecting Iowa businesses as well. Ransomware is a crime on the federal level, but attacks often come from international sources. And prosecution is difficult. Still, Ross said, the law could act as a hindrance from someone building ransom or launching an attack in Iowa. Anything we can do to help prevent those attacks from happening in the first place is a good start, she said. Right now, ransomware is technically legal in Iowa, which is pretty outrageous. I think everyone would agree. Some other states have made it illegal for government organizations to pay a ransom after suffering a ransomware attack but Warner urged lawmakers not to limit options for responding to attacks. It's not a time to be taking options off the table, particularly if you're a school district that has students that start tomorrow, and in order to make that happen, you have to pay a ransom, he said. Security unit. Cybersecurity unit. Another bill that cleared a subcommittee would create a cybersecurity unit within the state office of the chief information officer, which would collect data and report on cybersecurity breaches in the state. That bill received some pushback from lobbyists for local governments and utilities during the subcommittee meeting that 
Last week, over concerns that it would limit their ability to react to a cyber attack and require the reporting of confidential data. The terms of the bill give broad reporting requirements to government entities that experience a cyber attack, requiring them to report the date of the incident, the date it was discovered, what data was accessed or obtained, a list of agencies that will be notified, and additional information to the extent available. Doug Sturick, a lobbyist for the City of Des Moines, said he was concerned other provisions of the bill would give the OCIO too broad authority over how local entities can respond to a cyber attack. When you read this in its entirety, it appears to be giving the cybersecurity unit the ability to manage and coordinate a response of a political subdivision to a cybersecurity event, he said. The area education agencies of Iowa are registered in favor of the bill. King said it would create a support system for public entities in responding to, to attacks. Anytime in our public system that we can add expertise or structure to supporting cybersecurity, it seems that that is a reasonable approach and could be a good thing, she said. County, city, essential purpose. Another bill, which is receiving a subcommittee next week, would require cities and counties to protect against cyber attacks as part of their legally defined essential purposes. The bill would allow counties broader freedom to spend public funds on cybersecurity without requiring a public vote to take on the debt, said Lucas Beacon public policy specialist for the Iowa State Association of Counties. We think that it's very important because of the timelines of making those investments if they're necessary, he said. Not having to wait for approval, next election, special election, whatever the case may be, sometimes those those things need to happen quickly. Establishing a Cybersecurity Simulation Training Center A cybersecurity simulation training center would be established at Iowa State University under another bill considered in the House, dubbed SciSim for short. The center is proposed to be a cyber cyber sports complex that would train students using simulation challenges and scrimmages to respond to cyber attacks, according to the ISU website. It would also be a resource for businesses, state agencies, and other government bodies, according to the bill. Warner said he was excited about the program because it would train cybersecurity experts that could fill the need seen across the state. Every single person in this program is a potential employee slash resident of the state of Iowa, Warner said. They're all very highly compensated because they're in huge demand. They're exactly the kind of people we want to recruit here in the state of Iowa. There are three photos on the front of the newspaper titled ISD celebrates homecoming with pep rally coronation. The top photo is two homecoming royalty and junior royalty. Iowa School for the Deaf seniors Callista Nipper, second from the left, and Brittany Adam at right posed for photos after being crowned this year's homecoming royalty during a pep rally and coronation ceremony on Friday, January 20th, 2023. The ISD homecoming court was made up of the senior class, which also included Yaslanda Delirious, Roberto Hernandez, Yacom, Peyton Martin, 
Maddie Plager, Tra Powers, Holly Schroeder, and Alexander Vallier. The Bobcats hosted Heartland Christian School, Minnesota State Academy for the Deaf, and Metro Deaf School of St. Paul, Minnesota for a weekend of homecoming basketball action and other activities. There's also two other pictures of um, the crowd cheering and a group of cheerleaders. The caption reads, Bottom left, Iowa School for the Deaf students, teachers, and staff applaud during a homecoming pep rally and coronation ceremony on Friday, January 20th, 2023. Bottom right, Iowa School for the Deaf cheerleaders performed during a homecoming pep rally and coronation ceremony on Friday, January 20th, 2023. The next story is titled, Chamber Hosts Foodie Fridays. Informal meet and greet pairs great with food. This story is written by David Golbitz. Attendees cleared their plates at Impact CB's January Foodie Friday held at Mercy Thai around the, the Council Bluffs area Chamber of Commerce. The third Friday of each month known as Foodie Friday provides young professionals an informal opportunity to meet the network in a comfortable setting away from the rigors and stress of their jobs. Organized by Sarah Beth Ray, the Chamber's Director of Finance and Young Professional Engagement, Foodie Friday is an outreach event for Impact CB, the branch of the Chamber geared towards young adults ages 18 to 40. We started these last year in January just as a way to get our young professionals in the community together to meet each other and talk, Ray said. We always see people come, talk about their jobs, what they're doing. We see new job job offers go out from Foodie Fridays, which is always a cool opportunity, too. The most recent Foodie Friday was held last week at Mercy Thai, a Thai food restaurant that opened in late October along River's Edge Parkway. We like to go a different chamber member restaurant. We like to go to a different chamber member restaurant in town. We like to bounce around and try new places, Ray said. Depending on the restaurant and the season, Foodie Fridays have attracted as many as 30 people for a meal, Ray said. After introductions among the seven attendees last week, there was a little shop talk. Employment ranged from finance and accounting to journalism to city official, but it quickly diverted to talking about what brought everyone to Council Bluffs. More than one attendee grew up in the metro area, went away for school or work, and chose to return. Families, previous jobs in Disneyland, the usual get-to-know-you topics. It's very low-key, which is by design. It's just a good way to get to meet people, and we found it kind of lowered the barrier for a lot of our events, Ray said. We don't have a program or event fee, so it's just easy for folks to come out and have lunch with us. Open for lunch and dinner, Mercy Thai, 4104 Rivers Edge Parkway is affordable and cozy. Most of the dishes cost less than $15, and the portions are more than generous. Customers are also asked what their preferred heat level is on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the hottest. The young professionals who attended Foodie Friday got a range of dishes, from pad thai to pineapple fried rice, and everyone came away satisfied. Next month's Foodie Friday will be held on February 17th at Quaker Steak and Lube. 
3320 Mid-American Drive. For more information about Impact CB and Foodie Fridays, visit councilbluffsiowa.com backslash impact CB. This story is paired with a selfie of the Impact CB members at Foodie Friday, um, and it is titled, Attendees Cleared Their Plate at Impact CB January Foodie Friday, How That Mercy Tie. You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for January 23rd on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped in Des Moines. I'm Mel from Drake University. IRIS volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this or any IRIS program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747. That's 877-404-4747. We will now read through today's obituaries. John M. Meyer, February 24th, 1933 through January 14th, 2023. Lifetime resident of Council Bluffs, John moved to Spokane, Washington in 2017 to be near his daughter, Kim. He was born on February 24, 1933, to Henry and Virginia Meyer, Council Bluffs Funeral Directors. In 1951, John graduated from Abraham Lincoln High School, where he excelled in sports and was senior class president. Following graduation, he attended Southern Methodist University, University of Nebraska at Omaha, and Mortuary School in Dallas, Texas. He also served in the U.S. Army, being stationed in Korea and Japan. For many years, John was a member of St. John Lutheran Church in Council Bluffs. It was John's father who built the first modern funeral chapel in Council Bluffs. Following in his father's footsteps, John was a funeral director where he was a co-owner of Meyer Funeral Home. He was also a funeral director with Effie Hoffman, Dorak Cutler. He was preceded in death by his wife, Mary, who he married in 1955. He is survived by his daughter, Kim of Spokane, nieces and nephews. Services will be announced at a later date. Elvin G. Downing, Elvin G. Downing aged 71 years, born to the late Virgil and Norma Downing, December 12, 1951, in Council Bluffs, passed away January 17, 2023, in Council Bluffs. Al was a graduate of Thomas Jefferson High School. After graduating, he served in the United States Army. Al was a longtime plant manager for TCC Materials and retired after 26 years of service. Al enjoyed restoring classic cars. Al is preceded in death along with parents, wife, Linda Downing, brothers, Virgil and Les Downing. He is survived by his son, Alvin. Saul, daughter, Christy Downing, grandchildren, Mason, Brooklyn, and Madison. Saul, brothers, Carl and Gail Downing, sister, Grace Mueller. And this will be a private service. There is also a in-memoriam section for Jack W. Brown from January 11th 1938 through January 27, 2009. 
Forever in our hearts, missing you, loving you. Love, Jeanette, Kim, Trish, and family. We will now move on to the opinion section. This first story is called The Buck Stops Nowhere After Flights Halted. On Lake Southwest, FAA isn't being held accountable for what Buttigieg calls glitch. Only a couple weeks ago, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg roasted Southwest Airlines for problems that led to thousands of canceled flights. Yet Buttigieg was no model of contrition after airlines were grounded nationwide by a mega meltdown at the agency he oversees, the Federal Aviation Administration. This is an incredibly complex system, Buttigieg says. Glitches or complications happen all the time. Those are words of great comfort, no doubt, to any travelers who missed Grandma's funeral. The cause of the recent fiasco was a failure in the FAA's clunky decades-old notice to air missions system. NOTAM gives alerts to pilots before they take off, for example, if taxiways are closed for maintenance. But a system-wide crash is not a glitch. At the first FAA resort, at first the FAA resorted to a telephone hotline to keep plane, planes flying, but this backup quickly became overwhelmed. Then the FAA grounded all flights while it rebooted NOTAM. Some airlines, including JetBlue and Delta, believed that operations could continue despite the NOTAM out outage, according to a Wall Street Journal report. Pilots say the alerts often are irrelevant and unintelligible, and JetBlue reportedly developed a backup system because of past NOTAM out outage. The FAA's ground stop, which lasted nearly two hours, caused more than 1,300 flights across the U.S. to be canceled and at least 9,700 to be delayed. The agency blamed NOTAM out the NOTAM outage on a corrupted database file, though it also is still investigating. Officials say there is no evidence so far of a cyber attack, but given the importance of the FAA's mission, this kind of failure is hard to excuse. If glitches happen all the time, why doesn't the FAA have redundancies? Canada's NOTAM system, operated by a nonprofit, experienced apparently unrelated problems, but planes there kept flying. Our responsibility is to make sure that everybody is safe, and we're always going to err on the side of safety, Buttigieg said. When there's an issue in FAA, we're going to own it, but we're going to understand it. And we're going to make it very clear what's needed in order to fix it. But the FAA's antiquated systems have long created headaches, albeit ones less glaring to the public. Congress in 2003 mandated that the FAA implement a next-gen modernization plan by 2025, and it has given the agency money for the upgrades. Yet an Inspector General report in 2021 found that many FAA updates were de delayed because of poor planning. The NOTAM overhaul has been slow. We've argued for years that Congress should transfer air traffic control and related systems to a private entity, as Canada did in 1996. This would provide more accountability, meaning that aging systems would get modernized faster. Unlike airlines, the FAA doesn't have to pay a price for its foul-ups. When problems with Southwest outdated scheduling software forced it to cancel thousands of flights after Christmas, Buttigieg threatened to punish the airline and insisted it fully refund passengers. When the government knows fault, airlines and travelers are out of luck. 
This story is from the health section. Section, Fear of the flame. Will your gas range make you sick? Here's what science says. Will the gas stove in your kitchen make you sick? Will it cause asthma in your kids? Those questions came to the fore again recently as federal officials clarified that they are not planning to ban natural gas fueled ranges, ovens, or cooktops. Though scientific studies show that natural gas stoves emit high levels of nitrogen oxide and other health-damaging pollutants, the relationship between these pollutants and human health remains unclear. More on the science in a moment, but here's the bottom line. If you use a gas stove, make sure your kitchen is well ventilated, ideally with a range hood that pumps air outside. If that's not possible, use a HEPA air filter and make sure you use them when you're cooking. They can be noisy and people who own them often don't turn them on. Should you get rid of your gas stove? Emily Oster, an economist and data specialist at Brown University, has analyzed the research on the matter and offers this advice. If you have a gas stove, do you need to replace it tomorrow? No, unless you have some significant respiratory issue, said Oster, who also works with the National Bureau of Economic Research. If you're buying a new stove, she said, and you're not particularly committed to cooking with fire, I'd say get an induction stove. Why might it be dangerous? Natural gas is mostly methane, a fossil fuel that emits greenhouse gases as its blue flames burn. Proponents of gas stove bans typically cite the reduction of carbon emissions as their main goal, but they almost always mention health concerns too. There's no question that natural gas cooking emits harmful chemicals including nitrogen oxide, carbon monoxide, and formaldehyde. Several studies have noted that the pollutants issued by gas stoves before they're ventilated away can exceed levels that would violate Environmental Protection Agency air standards if the air outside were just as polluted and studies have shown that natural gas pipe leaks cause air pollution inside and out. But the scientific research behind the health effects of natural gas stoves is complicated and inconclusive. Though some studies found a significant association between gas stove and prevalence of asthma or asthma symptoms in children, no direct causal relationship between gas stove use and bad health has been identified. Given the difficulties in conducting such research, especially the swarm of variables that tend to confound the results, a clear answer is hard to come by. And given the limitations of available data and the associations and correlations raise questions. Why is the science so inconclusive? Scientists in this case have a large number of potentially confounding factors that could skew results. How big is the cooking area? Is there ventilation? How often is the stove used? Who else in the house or apartment? Who else is in the house or apartment when meals are prepared? Is there mold behind the walls? If so, how can that be separated from gas stove emissions to reach health conclusions? In an apartment or house close to heavy traffic, are heavy trucks rumbling down the street outside? The association between gas appliance use and health, including furnaces and water heaters, have mixed results, in part due to study design limitations, but also due to a lack of data or quantified exposures, according to a 2020 report issued by UCLA and the Sierra Club. 
Lead author Yifeng Zhu, professor at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health, said, There are definitely health concerns that merit further study, but the evidence is not as substantial as what people have done for outdoor air. Like Oster, Zhu emphasized the importance of good ventilation. In fact, for poor, for poor people, sub- subsidies for range hoods might improve indoor air quality more effectively than a gas stove ban, at least in the short term. Those who choose to replace their gas stoves with an electromagnetic induction stove need hundreds to thousands of dollars to do so. Buyers might, however, qualify for federal, city, and utility rebates. The UCLA report made it clear that it does not compare the benefits and costs of electrification versus improving range hood range hood use and efficiency in terms of reducing indoor air pollution. Iowa's private schools could grow as state money hits. Many private schools are full and 42 of Iowa counties don't even have them. Written by Aaron Murphy, Gazette Des Moines Bureau. An infusion of hundreds of million dollars every year soon could hit the private school market in Iowa thanks to a proposed state-funded private school financial assistance package being pushed by government Governor Kim Reynolds and Republican state lawmakers. That money could have sin- significant impact on the private school industry in Iowa, which as of the 2022-2023 school year included 183 schools and 33,692 students. According to the State Education Department data, that's about 7% of the 486,000 476 students in the state's public schools. But could the impact be limited in who would benefit? Nearly half of Iowa's 99 counties, 42, do not have a private school within their borders. Some of the areas where there are no private schools are in rural areas with fewer and smaller towns, and many private schools are near or at capacity and would find it difficult to add students. The proposal, which likely will be debated this week in the Iowa House and Senate, is to offer state funding to any Iowa student who wishes to attend a private school. The student would receive $7,590 every year to put toward tuition, textbooks, classroom materials, and other types of educational programming expenses. The program would be open first to new kindergartners, students who didn't attend a private school the year before, and students from low-income families. It would be gradually phased in, becoming available for more private school students until in the fourth year, it would be available to all K-12 Iowa students. At full, full implementation, the governor's staff has estimated the program will cost the state more than $340 million annually. A Republican legislator who chairs Iowa Senate's budget committee said last week he believes that number will actually be higher. The state nonpartisan fiscal analysis agency has not yet completed its analysis of and cost projections for the proposal. Some have suggested the new money pouring into the private school industry could lead to the creation of more private schools. Over time, quite possibly, said Tom Chapman, executive director of the Iowa Catholic Conference which lobbies state lawmakers on issues that are important to the Catholic bishops in Iowa. I think over time, as those resources become available for families, 
there could be expansion. Florida's private school financial assistance program, one of the first in the country, was established in 1999. From the 2000 to 2001 school year to 2021-2022, the number of private schools in Florida has increased 53%, according to data from the state's education department. Private school enrollment has increased 19.3% over that same period. Iowa House Speaker Pat Grassley, a Republican from New Hartford, last week said the creation of expanded or new private schools in the state is definitely a possibility under the proposal. Obviously, there are some available slots that exist right now, but there could be more, Grassley said. But I also look at that as more of a competition, creating more choice for parents so that may be a byproduct. But I don't think it happens just today. But over the course of time, I think that's a real possibility. Asked if there's enough room to accommodate the roughly 14,000 students the government's office estimates would be eligible for the program in the first year, Grassley said he expects some private schools may choose to expand and create more slots, while others like the way that they are. It's just like in the public school system right now. We have schools that have reached a certain capacity that will only take students who are living within their border because they've reached capacity, Grassley said. So I think that's going to be a conversation that they'll have to have in each community. Trinity Lutheran, a K-8 school in Cedar Rapids that is accredited by the state and the National Lutheran School Association has about 250 students, including the school's early childhood center. The school has 32 openings and exploring options to expand, said Principal Mark Miller. We're running out of room and need more classes, Miller said. However, Miller said the school would not use money from the educational savings account from the proposed legislation to finance a building project. He said he supports the proposal, but it has very little to do with the financial benefit. I think there are parents who would like to have their kids in our school because of who we are and how we operate, that we are not able to because they can't afford it, Miller said. To-go cocktails would have to travel in the trunk under new bills. Margaritas and other mixed alcohol-containing drinks that were first allowed as to-go orders from restaurants and bars in the early throes of the coronavirus pandemic in Iowa might be relegated to vehicle trunks. Currently, those drinks are not considered open containers of alcohol and can be transported in vehicles within reach of drivers. Two bills in the Iowa House and Senate would reverse that and make drivers liable for open containers if police found even a sealed-to-go cocktail within reach. The current law was meant to boost the revenue of businesses that suffered mightily from the pandemic. When in-person dining largely ceased and to-go orders and deliveries became the norm, Iowa was the first state legislator to codify such provision after numerous state governments enacted them on a temporary basis. The problem is that the federal government is threatened to withhold about $14 million of annual funding for roads and bridges because of that provision. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration imposes a transfer penalty for states that don't have compliant open container laws and we would redirect 2.5% of Iowa's funding to be used for anti-drunken driving initiatives. 
We are in favor just from the highway funding aspect and also that the drink is not in the front seat or the back seat of the car where it is reachable. Susan Fenton, Fenton, the legislative liaison for the Iowa Department of Transportation, said Thursday. Fenton's remarks were part of a state government subcommittee hearing on Senate Study Bill 1032, which the subcommittee advanced. A House committee canceled its Thursday hearing on the identical House Study Bill 29. I'm happy to move it out of move it out today as is with the understanding that there's more conversation here and we'll discuss it further said Senator Dan Dawson Republican from Council Bluffs a special agent of the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation who led the house hearing this next story is from our lifestyle section glass half full the benefits of teaching kids to think optimistically Optimism is a mindset with serious health benefits. It can ward off chronic conditions such as stroke and heart disease, protect against depression, and improve our ability to cope with stress. An optimistic outlook may even help you live longer. Not everyone is a born optimist, but it's a skill anyone can learn. And one we can, we should be teaching our children, said Robin Miller, an interim chief of Adolescent Medicine and Pediatric Gynecology at Nemours Children Health in Delaware. He's why optimism is a valuable skill for children and how to teach it. What is an optimist? An optimist is someone who sees the positive side of things. Optimists believe things will work out and act based on that belief. Pessimists expect things to turn out poorly, which may lead them to act in ways that result in the poor outcomes they expect. If you're an optimist, you don't just sit there and say everything will work out if you believe it. Miller said, you continue to move forward as if everything will work out. Pessimists often never find out whether things could have worked out in their favor. Why is optimism good? Optimism is a coping mechanism that helps children and adults process stress in a healthy way. It's not about ignoring setbacks. Rather, it's a way of processing disappointment or sadness that recognizing that recognizes these feelings as temporary and acknowledges the potential for change. For instance, an optimist who misses out on a promotion may take time to feel down, then commit to working hard to try again. A pessimist may take the rejection as a sign to never being good enough and decide it's not worth trying again. Teaching these skills to children can help them navigate common adolescent and teenage disappointments, such as breakups, sports losses, and not getting cast in the school play. Children who learn to process their emotions in a productive way grow into well-adjusted, resilient adults. How can adults teach optimism to children? Adults can model optimistic behavior. Let children feel their emotions. Caregivers are often quick to try to comfort a child who's disappointed by saying that everything is okay. But this can have an unintended consequence of teaching children to not trust their emotions. Instead, talk to children about how they're feeling and how they want to move forward. This teaches them that they can have the power to make good things happen. Don't hide your emotions. Adults often attempt to hide their emotions to protect children from difficult events. 
such as job losses, divorce, or family death. But hiding your emotions only teaches children that they should do the same, Miller said. Instead, be honest with children about how you're feeling and talk to them about how you plan to process what you're going through. Adults don't give kids enough credit. Kids are observant and have high emotional IQs, Miller said. Children may be confused if they sense a problem, but their parent or caregiver says that everything is fine. It's better to address the issue, Miller said. Four ways to be more optimistic. One, take a few minutes every day to recognize the things you're grateful for or the things that went well. Two, have confidence that you have the ability to bring good things to your life. Three, don't blame yourself when things go wrong. Look at the reality of a situation. Four, remember that setbacks are temporary. Plan for how to avoid the same one in the future. Toxic trout contaminated with forever chemicals. Freshwater fish more contaminated with forever chemicals than saltwater fish. Michael Hawthorne, Chicago Tribune. Eating just one freshwater fish a year can dramatically increase the amount of toxic forever chemicals coursing through a person's blood. According to a new study that reflects more than a half century of pollution contaminating the Great Lakes and rivers nationwide. The alarming finding is based on an, an analysis of hundreds of fish caught by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency since 2013. Though the EPA has concluded some of the chemicals are harmful at any level, the agency hasn't drawn attention to its fish sampling or warned Americans they could be in danger. Nearly every fish tested by the EPA was tainted with perfluoroctane sulfonate or PF. OS, a forever chemical used to use for decades in Scotchgard stain-resistant fabric, firefighting foam, and food packaging manufactured by Minnesota-based 3M. PFOS builds up in human blood, doesn't break down in the environment, and triggers health problems such as liver damage, impaired fertility, immune system disorders, thyroid disease, increased cholesterol levels, and reduced vaccine effectiveness. Long-term exposure also might cause cancer. These findings point to the urgent need to eliminate more releases of these chemicals into the environment, said David Andrews, a senior scientist at the nonprofit Environmental Working Group and one of the authors of the new study. We don't want this problem to get any worse, especially knowing how long it's going to take for it to get better. A single serving of freshwater fish during a year is equivalent to drinking water laden with 48 parts per trillion of PFOS for a month. Andrews and his colleagues concluded in their peer-reviewed study published Tuesday in the journal Environmental Research. To put that number into context, the nationwide median of PFOS in drinking water is estimated to be less than five parts per trillion. The highest concentration detected in Chicago drinking water so far is 2.8 parts per trillion. In June, the EPA announced there is effectively no safe exposure to PFOS and related chemical, PFOA. Exposure from eating fish is of particular concern for Native Americans, certain immigrant communities, and low-income Americans who depend on lakes and rivers for a significant portion of their diet. 
Andrews noted, citing other studies. Freshwater fish in the United States appear to be significantly more contaminated than seafood. The median concentration of forever chemicals in the EPA testing was 278 times higher than what the Food and Drug Administration found during the past four years in saltwater fish, shrimp, lobster, clams, and oysters. The highest level of PFOS detected in Great Lakes fish, 64,400 parts per trillion, came from white perch caught in Lake Erie near Monroe, Michigan, a Chicago Tribune review of EPA data found. Yellow perch in the Lake Michigan near Holland, Michigan, and whiting were tainted with 22,900 parts per trillion and 12,500 parts per trillion, respectively. The level in walleye caught off the Door County Peninsula in Wisconsin, 11,500 parts per trillion. EPA sampling in the Great Lakes from 2013 through 2015 did not include fish from Illinois waters, but the 2010 In 2010, the agency found 19,000 parts per trillion of PFOS in brown trout caught off North Avenue Beach in Chicago. Disturbing levels have also been detected in the nation's rivers and streams. Northwest of Madison, the EPA found 74,200 parts per trillion in smallmouth bass caught in the Wisconsin River. Upstream from Cave-In Rock, in deep southern Illinois, channel catfish pulled from the Ohio River had a whopping 135,000 parts per trillion of PFOS. Closer to Chicago, the agency found 25,000 parts per trillion in channel catfish from the Fox River in Lake Barrington. The level of the smallmouth bass from the Cancani River near Bourbonnet, 9,530 parts per trillion. Unlike other toxic substances, such as mercury or PCBs, worrisome concentrations of forever chemicals aren't limited to specific types of fish. EPA data shows PFOS and related compounds, known as PER and polyfluoroalkyl substances, or PFAS, bind to fish tissue and can be cooked or trimmed and can't be cooked or trimmed out. Mercury, for example, tends to be higher in bigger, older fish, said Gavin Daynert, an emergency contaminants researcher at Wisconsin Sea Grant, who, along with several indigenous tribes in the Upper Midwest, recently launched another study of PFAS in the region's lakes, rivers, and fish. Andrew speculated one reason why the EPA hasn't publicized its test results is because fish are an important source of protein and other nutrients. Burdening Americans with the PFAS isn't worried worth the trade-off, he said. PFAS are still aren't regulated in the United States. The Biden administration is proposing to list PFOS and PFOA as hazardous substances under federal law, which would make it easier to force polluters to clean up contaminated sites at their own expense. Updated fish consumption advisories aren't on the administration's agenda, though some states, including Michigan, Minnesota, and Wisconsin, caution people to limit or avoid eating certain fish based on PFOS contamination. You never want to hear that these chemicals whose names you can't pronounce are in the water you're drinking or the fish you're eating, said Christy Rumical, 
an associate professor of civil and environmental engineering at the University of Wisconsin. And that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for January 23rd, 2023. The Nonpareil can be heard each weekday at 3 p.m. Iris volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any questions or comments about today's broadcast or any Iris program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747. I'm Mel from Drake University in Des Moines. Thank you for listening.